Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joel Show podcast. Today on the pod, changing the game, our provincial hockey authority is actually investigating over 60 instances of racial slurs and on-ice racism over seven months. Plus, time to go. Atira Housing CEO finally reads the room and resigns after a damning BC housing audit. Now what? And the long wait. It's been three decades since a Canadian NHL franchise has won the Stanley Cup. The drought continues. That's all next on the Jazz Joel Show podcast. Let's focus on a recent story we covered as we have new information that has come to light. Earlier this month, we learned of Brian McGilvery, who, along with his coaching colleagues, pulled their U11 Surrey rep team from the ice before the end of a game back in February after the players on that team reported being the subject of racial slurs. Now, the majority of players on the team are of South Asian heritage. And we've also learned to, on May 11th, uh, those parents of the players sent a letter to Hockey Canada to investigate the specific incidents where slurs like monkey, banana, and the N-word were used. Now, we have a copy of the letter that uh, we managed to get a hold of, and uh, in that letter, uh, we learned during the investigation uh, uh, in regards to that game on February 17th, team officials were told that the BC Hockey Association is investigating, get this, over 60 instances of racial slurs and on-ice racism over a seven-month period. 60 instances of racial slurs and on-ice racism over a seven-month period. Joining me now is Perry Doulet. He is a parent of a U11A1 rep team player in Surrey. Uh, his uh, son is on that very team we have been talking about. Uh, Mr. Doulet, thank you for joining us. Uh, thanks for having me, Jeff. Why was it important to send this letter uh, that, that has been done now to Hockey Canada, and I guess you sent it to other authorities as well? Yeah, I went to Hockey Canada, um, BC Hockey, all the politicians, the Minister of Sports, Provincial and Federal. Um, what happened is after uh, the issue took place and the story broke, we got a lot of calls. Uh, I've been getting an emails from parents across the country whose kids have endured this, um, but they don't have the means or they're in smaller communities where they think they'll be kind of blacklisted if they speak out. So it's not um, just a, you know, a singular issue. So looking at that, and plus our parents weren't getting any headway with BC Hockey or Surrey Minor Hockey Association, there was no responses. There's been over 100 emails that were sent before this um, letter we sent out. Um, so we had to bring it to the attention of Hockey Canada and the ministers, um, and since that letter, over the weekend, we have gotten an email from Hockey Canada saying they would like to investigate this. Um, but, I mean, it comes to our point again of this is an incident that took place on February 17th, and we're at May 15th. And after all this media and um, lobbying and outcry, we finally, you know, we finally caught their attention. So what happens if you don't do this? Mm-hmm. Um, so... That's what our letter is about, that there needs to be some changes. And um, what our kids went through, no one should ever go through that again. Now, in, and, regards, um, in regards to your letter, though, are you asking for systemic changes or are you asking uh, to, the, to address this specific situation? Where, so we're, uh, we're, yeah, we're doing both. I mean, our, our biggest one is changes to BC hockey policy saying uh, where they have a rule 10.8, you cannot stop a, a game where a coach can pull off his kids. 
But we think there should be changes. I mean, if there's something like that or any other violent incident, you should be able to pull your team off. You're the, you're the, you're, you know, you're in control at that time. That's what you've been designated to do. Um, number two was the issue you spoke about earlier is to develop a, a task force um, that can review how the these racism discriminatory um, cases are handled at BC Minor. Um, because when our coaches went in for their hearing. Um, it was told to them that there's about 60 cases um, so far this season, and the season starts in September, and we're talking February, I think, 20 or 21st, they had a call with them. Mm -hmm. So there needs to be, like, how are these tracked? Um, Like, we haven't heard anything from BC Hockey since our complaints gone in. Um, and, like my, you know. and have they said whether this was out of the ordinary, this is the average season? Uh, did they give you a sense of how they're investigated, how they're tracked, Any anything like that? No, we. I'm not privy to that, the coaches were, but we, from our conversation with the coaches, get a call with all the parents after nothing of that sort was mentioned. Um, we were just alarmed by the number um, that's been reported, and the way we're getting emails and messages from people right now, you can assure that that's probably at least quadruple that number in real life where people just don't report it depending what association they are, right? Mm-hmm. So in this, I want, to, I want to clarify this. So this is what, uh, when, when that initial incident occurred on February 17th, um, the one we've been talking about, one that's been in the news with the racial slurs yes. being allegedly uttered, uh, they were investigating. Yes. And so a BC Hockey Association members or executive informed yep. the coaches of this team that they were investigating over 60 incidents of racial slurs and on-ice racism over the period of seven months. Now, in regards to the original story, there were two facets of it, what was stated and the coach's actions and the fact that the coach uh, was taken off the team eventually. And the Surrey Minor Hockey Association has said that there are two separate issues, that Mr. McGilvery was taken off for other reasons, not because of what he did. Uh, are, are you in this letter in, in asking to have him reinstated, or is this a question of the issue of race and racial slurs being prevalent uh, in the game of hockey? So I think going back to our third ask was the review of Surrey Minor Hockey Association structure, policy, and procedures, and handling its issues uh, of issues like this, and the failure to communicate um, with the parties or the parents that are the members or the victims. Um, in there, yes, we are asking for the removal of uh, Coach McGillery's suspension from his record and him getting reinstated to Surrey Minor because uh, we as parents since March have been asking for some communication, some meeting um, with the executive, and they've, they've just ignored us. They've just blocked us from any communication. Mm-hmm. Um, then they put out an email saying, well, there was other reasons um, what other reasons? If they were so grave or if there was something serious that took place, why would he coaching at Surrey Minor for two years then? Yeah. You're um, telling me you had an issue with this coach two years ago where it was very serious where you had to release him, but you let him run um, two teams in that time and you let him bring up kids and you know practice with them four or five times a week. So our, our position is that this is very personal. Um, between the coach and a couple of the executive members. Um, and they've used um, this, the, the event of February 17th now, and they've, they've released them. Because other than that, there's no justification that's been given to the, 
the families. The letter that you have in front of you has over 20 families that would be potential players for Coach McGilvery's next year U13 team, and they they just want answers. Right? Does hockey have a racism problem? Yes. I mean, you look at the, it starts at the NHL, you've heard about issues there. You, you look at the CHL, there's been issues there. And minor right now, we've experienced it. And if someone says otherwise, they can come speak to us. Um, they can, you know, see our kids, what they went through. It wasn't a pretty sight. Even the, you know, few members, maybe of certain minors that don't acknowledge this or they think this is normal. There are people out there, they think, hey, this is just a part of hockey. It's normal. It's not normal. Right? And especially if you haven't experienced it, how can you normalize it? Who are you to judge? Final question is, has, has Hockey Canada given you a timeline in regards to how, the, how long their investi- investigation is going to last? Not yet. They've just asked for an initial interview, um, and that's it so far. So once we do that interview, we'll find out. But, I mean, my thing with that right now, even personally, is, I mean, I think the other parents would agree is, like the amount of stuff we have to go through just to get this going, like letters to the minister, like is that what parents in Canada will have to do from now on to get an investigation launched into racial slurs at hockey? Perry, thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate it. Thanks, guys. Earlier today, uh, my colleague uh, Jill Bennett uh, was speaking to uh, Dr. Craig Jones. He's part of the UBC Housing Research Collaborative, uh, and they wrote a report on evictions in Canada. Uh, Essentially, our province uh, has the highest rate of evictions in our country, and the vast majority of evictions in BC, 85%, are deemed to be, as they say, no fault of the tenant. Uh, Dr. Jones spoke to Jill uh, uh, during uh, the 12 and 3 o'clock hours. Uh, Take a listen to his comments. There was a new question that was added about have you ever been forced to move by a landlord? And if respondents answered yes, then there was a follow-up question that asked, well, what was the reason for that for that eviction? What we could do then is we grouped three of those responses, sale of the property, landlord use, and uh, renovation, demolition, or conversion, and we grouped them together into what we called a no-fault eviction on the assumption that you know that has nothing to do with the tenant. And so what we're able to see by using that grouping is that we find that we estimate that the national average for that kind of no-fault eviction was around 65%. We have an estimate for BC, which was 85%. And when we take a look at the eviction rate by national and by the four largest provinces, we see that this no-fault eviction rate over that five-year period for BC is 9%, whereas the national average is 4%. We have a high degree of confidence that BC's higher eviction rate is largely driven by a higher rate of no-fault evictions. Joining me now to talk a little bit about no-fault evictions is uh, Susanna Madrovich, a Tenant Resource and Advisory Centre representative. Susanna, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Jess. Does it surprise you in regards to what uh, Dr. Craig Jones was saying in regards to um, our higher proportion of uh, no-fault evictions? It doesn't surprise me at all. We, we have a tenant information line, and that sort of tracks with the data that we we've been collecting over time as well for tenants calling in about various issues. Um, the majority, it seems, uh, of tenants who call about evictions are calling about these no-fault type evictions. Um, now, I, I was speaking, speaking to um, 
uh, folks over at uh, Landlord BC on Friday's show. And one of the things they said, look, we, you know, you do have a lot of investor uh, landlords. You have, uh, in in some cases, you haven't been able to raise the rent uh, as, as much as costs have gone up uh, or in regards to mortgages as well. Uh, what do you say to that argument that, look, uh, landlords don't have it easy as well. They're trying to maximize as much whatever they can in regards to their resources to make sure their costs are covered, whether it be just upkeep, whether it be staying up with the mortgage that they have to pay. What do you say to that argument? I, I mean, t- to be frank, it sounds disingenuous to me. Rents have risen faster than inflation for many, many years in BC. It's not as if you know during. It's not as if during the years where inflation was low, uh, landlords curbed the rents that they set for sort of new tenants coming in. They just went with whatever they thought the market could bear. Landlords are trying to maximize profits. That that's sort of our take. What do you think needs to happen if, if this is occurring and according, according to Dr. Um, Craig Jones' study that we have a, a higher percentage of our evictions are due to uh, no-fault evictions? What needs to happen in your mind? I mean, I think, okay, in order to explain it, I sort of have to explain the way that the no-fault and, and other evictions in BC work, and mm-hmm. the vast majority of them. In the vast majority of evictions, all a landlord has to do is serve a tenant with an eviction notice. They don't have to file anything with any government oversight body or anything like that. They just have to serve the tenant a piece of paper, and then the burden is on the tenant to either dispute that eviction notice if they don't think the landlord is actually going to use the property for what they say they're going to use it for, or to move out in a accordance with it. So that's sort of the first problem with the way that evictions work, is that we make it very, very easy for landlords to do it, and we don't track how often it's happening, because the landlords don't have to file anything anywhere. The second problem is where tenants do dispute eviction notices, when they lose, they often end up in a position where they have to move out very, very quickly, because the residential tenancy branch arbitrators in these disputes often sort of default to awarding landlords two-day order of possession. So essentially, a tenant who gets an eviction notice through no fault of their own, let's say the landlord says they want to move in, doesn't think the landlord actually wants to do that, so they dispute it, go to a hearing, if they lose because the landlord convinces the arbitrator that they do intend to move in, they might have to move out in two days, and that's completely untenable. So tenants who are sort of considering what to do in that situation often won't dispute just because of that. Whether or not they believe the landlord is going to do what they say they're going to do, they just don't dispute because the risk is too high. So a couple of very easy things that could happen procedure-wise mm-hmm. that would, I think, curb these problems is, one, make landlords apply to the residential tenancy branch to be allowed to evict tenants especially for these kinds of no-fault evictions. And two, don't give landlords two-day orders of possession. There's no reason for it. So, but what you're also saying here is that if, you have to, if a landlord has to go through the residential tenancy branch, it is a new layer of bureaucracy, certainly, uh, that you're going to have to create where they can respond to these issues pretty quickly for the case of the landlord wanting, if he does, he or she does have family moving in. I mean, you're going to have to have somebody adjudicate all this. You would need more resources for the residential tenancy branch. Fair enough. So resource the residential tenancy branch more. They did this for evictions for renovations back when we had sort of a renovation crisis, as people referred to it. Mm-hmm. And those kinds of evictions pretty much dropped off the radar because now landlords have to apply and they have to prove that they actually intend to renovate and those renovations are extensive enough, et cetera. Mm -hmm. 
Well, Susanna, this is an interesting topic. Look forward to having you on again. Interesting study, and we've been following this for the last couple of days. Look forward to chatting with you on this issue soon. Thank you so much. Thank you as well. All right. Have a good rest of your day. Well, let's uh, take a look at the long-running Atira Housing uh, Society story. Of course, you've been following the news uh, today on CKNW. The CEO of Atira Women's Resource Society uh, resigned from her post uh, a week after her organization's financial practices um, were thrust into the spotlight. Janice Abbott announced her resignation uh, this morning, and uh, it has been quite interesting. It, this this whole housing society and BC Housing itself has been in the news after a long-awaited financial audit revealed that there was serious mismanagement and conflict of interest issues between the Crown Corporation and Atira. Ms. Abbott, of course, uh, was the CEO of Atira Women's Resource Society. And then, of course, her husband um, was at one point the CEO of uh, BC Housing. Joining me now to talk about this issue uh, is Richard Zussman, Global BC's legislative reporter. Richard, thank you for joining us. My pleasure, Josh. Thanks for having me. So, uh, not that the story ends here, but what 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 happens now? I mean, uh, we expected her to eventually uh, step down, even though it looks like it took them a while to read the room. What happens now? Yeah, so what happens now is the province is still making an assessment about whether uh, ATIRA will continue to receive funding through BC Housing. So there are a number of criteria that ATIRA needs to meet. Uh, One of those is the change in leadership. We have that change of leadership now, but there are a number of others, including this third-party audit we now know will be conducted by KPMG, a physical inspection of the buildings. You know, these... um, findings around Atira are not new. You know, there have been concerns that have been raised for years around the state of some of these buildings, the management of some of these buildings, and the province is now stepping in due to these concerns to help do a full assessment. So a decision still means, needs to be made. And it's also really important to note that all Joe Janice Abbott may be gone. The board is still very much in place. And the behavior of the board over the last week needs to be questioned. They sent out a statement within 24 hours of this audit being released. They sent it out through media channels at midnight. Uh, saying that uh, the organization and Janice Abbott had done nothing wrong and they stood by her. Uh, And then they sent out another statement on Friday saying that, uh, oh, they will allow a third-party review, but we get to choose the parameters of that review. Uh, And then now we find out this resignation of Janice Abbott today. So there are some serious questions about that board. And although the Premier said today that uh, the resignation of Janice Abbott helps to restore some trust, There are some serious questions about whether that trust can be fully restored while the same board remains in place. The province has few tools to to remove a board, but there may continue to be public attention and public pressure uh, because of what we've seen unfold over the last seven days. And ultimately, BC Housing, ultimately uh, the provincial government are are the ones who are providing the funding. Uh, There's limited, one would assume, uh, the board itself has to walk a very, very thin line here and and say, wait a minute, we can't afford to be annoying the provincial government. Your CEO's already um, sort of walked the plank at this point. They've got to be very careful. Yeah, and I think there was a lack of that carefulness early on here because uh, Atira, 
uh, relies heavily on BC Housing. Mm-hmm. And yes, they have a private wing, uh, which was not part of this forensic audit. And there are questions around how that uh, for m- money-making side of ATIRA works. But within the side where the majority of contracts come through BC Housing, the non-profit side, uh, they need this money. That Their sole um, source of money to provide this housing comes from the province. And they have a commitment to those uh, women and children who live in their facilities to ensure that there is a safe place for them to live. And the only way to ensure that is through proper, stable funding. And the board does need to tread carefully, as you say. And and I would be surprised uh, if this is the end of changes at Atira. We likely will see some changes to the board. There is a commitment now to welcome someone from government on that board, and we'll see what sort of... Um, Changes come from that sort of oversight. Was the border, Ms. Abbott, just oblivious? Were they arrogant? What, I mean, what got them to this point? I'm like, I'm just shaking my head. I just thinking, yeah. how, why does it take you till today to say, you know, I'm going to step down? Because it's not like there was some disagreement. The comments that were made in that audit in regards to the way Mr. Ramsey, uh, Janice Abbott, Abbott's husband, and the way Atira ran things was just appalling. Like, what, what, and it's hard to read the tea leaves here, but. Was it arrogance? Was it just they were oblivious to this? I don't understand. Like, give, Walk me through this a little bit. I, I think that those are two good adjectives to use about what's unfolded over the last week. I think there was a sense of arrogance. I think there was a standstone place here where Atira was pointing to the great work that they have done in, in many places, but did not remember or, or want to remember some of the huge criticism that they faced, very legitimate criticism about the way that they have managed a lot of their buildings. And then on top of that, the significant criticism around this conflict of interest, they were tone deaf to the concerns from the public. And there was also, uh, based on how quickly this was happening, I think they were oblivious towards that as well. The government was unrelenting here. And as the government faced more pressure from the opposition, the stakes went up and up and up. Because as BC United tried to blame this on the government, the only out for government ultimately uh, was to see some changes that tear up. Because if those changes never came, it would be easy for BC United to blame the government for an action. So uh, the board and, and Janice Abbott, I think, felt that this was going to go away. Uh, but for various reasons, it wasn't going to go away. And that ultimately led to the decision today, I think. I mean, the government doesn't look good here. And I think the opposition's done a really good job in regards to pointing out um, uh, some of the holes in Mr. Eby's uh, argument. Um, but I also am looking at a, an old article. I think it's from 2012. Um, and it says, it's from the province. It says, quote, when asked in 2011 about the Ramsey-Abbott marriage and the potential conflict of interest, Coleman, being Rich Coleman, the then housing minister for the BC Liberals, Coleman laughed it off and says, quote, non-issue. <laughs> well, turns out there's a bit of an issue, yeah. judging by what happened many years later. Um, my sense is that, you know, as long as we're building social housing, whether it be the BC Liberals or BC NDP, there was a tendency in both governments to sort of say, you know what, things are getting done. It's not all perfect. Yes, uh, you know, we we may not agree with how things are run over there, but it's we're building things. And they both kind of, and both governments, government sort of stepped away and did not provide perhaps the the guidance and uh, did not have the involvement when it comes to governance that probably was required and needed. Yeah, I think all of this is a reminder that these are substantial contracts that are rewarded, substantial projects. And as we see a 
commitment from government to build more and more housing, to commit more and more to this, there needs to be greater oversight in that. And I think uh, there was a lack of realization from that, from the previous government, from the current government, and there will be a greater role from government that when such significant uh, public funds are going into this, there needs to be accountability for that, not just on terms of where the money is being spent, but really on how that is being administered as well. Mm-hmm. Richard, thank you so much for your time today. Yeah, my pleasure as always. Thanks, Jess. Earlier today, uh, my goal was to speak to uh, a former colleague of mine, someone you know very well, Squire Barnes, a Global BC Sports Director. Now, over the weekend, uh, we heard that the Edmonton Oilers, of course, were knocked out of the playoffs after their 5-2 loss to the Vegas Golden Knights. Um, and, of course, the Toronto Maple Leafs uh, also lost to the Florida Panthers uh, over five games, which means there are no more Canadian NHL franchises. Franchise teams uh, playing in the NHL playoffs. So it will be the 30th year in a row. Can you believe that? 30 years in a row where we will not see a Canadian team lift the Stanley Cup. The last team to do so was the Montreal Canadiens in 1993. And I hope to speak to Squire about that in regards to why that was happening. Uh, but I also, um, when I placed that call to Squire, I also learned um, soon after that, uh, Deb Hope, uh, former anchor, of course, reporter at Global BC, has died at the age of 60, 67. Uh, Deb, of course, a longtime colleague, and for two generations, anybody who has turned on BC TV, Global BC, would recognize her face as the anchor at one time of the new news or the 5 p.m. news, or, of course, working along with Tony Parsons um, on their flag- flagship 6 p.m. news hour uh, telecast. Uh, Deb retired. Uh, in 2014, when she was diagnosed with Alzheimer's, which eventually led her to living in a nursing home. Here's uh, a few um, comments from Deb when she retired in 2014. And then there's the signature Deb Hope laugh. <laughs> oh. The Variety Club Show of Hearts in Studio One. Deb is just as passionate when she's not at work. She's involved with dozens of charities and, of course, singing with her fireworks quartet. Deb, you are unforgettable and you will be missed. Unforgettable, that's what you are. A few words and comments uh, about Deb Hope. Uh, She passed away. Uh, today at the age of 67. Uh, Deb joined Global in 1981. The station wasn't even called Global BC at that time. It was BC TV. I spoke to Squire a couple of hours ago. Here's some of our conversation. Let's focus on the uh, the immediate uh, story before us, an important one and a personal one as well. Uh, we lost uh, uh, lost a colleague, uh, Deb Hope, a former anchor and, of course, reporter at uh, Global BC and previous to that, uh, BCTV. Uh, you worked with her for a lot of years, did you not? I worked with her for 22 years. Wow. 22 years, if my math is correct, because she retired um, on the 6 o'clock show on, um, in uh, 2014. Mm-hmm. Uh, for our audience who obviously would know her well for her, uh, well, over two decades of anchoring and reporting uh, at BCTV and Global BC, give a, give them a sense of what she was like to work with. Well, I think the best thing I can probably say is for anyone who watched Deb, 
work at BCTV Global, um, they did know her because what you saw on TV, what you saw when she was reporting and what you saw when she was anchoring the newscast, that was her. There was no airs. There was no different personality because she's on TV. You know, she was she was as she was when she walked off the set and went back into the newsroom. She was just as comfortable on the air as she was off the air. She was just the same on the air as she was off the air. So to the people who watched her for years and liked watching her, I'm happy to say that you knew her because you saw what we saw. Mm-hmm. And and I think there isn't a person who worked with Deb who wouldn't agree with that statement. And there was so many facets about her um, as a journalist and as a human being. But, you know, one of the ones is she was very kind to the people she worked with, to her friends, obviously, and her family, and to strangers as well. But, you know, that kindness should not be mistaken for gullibility because she was not gullible. She was a fantastic reporter. She had a news mind. She knew what was real and what wasn't. She knew how to interview people. She knew how to put a story together. And she knew how to communicate that to the audience in a way that everybody understood and everybody felt comfortable with. Mm-hmm. You know, she was, she was, you know, in baseball, they like to say, this guy's a five-tool player. That's what she was. Mm-hmm. She was in print media before she came to television. She was in radio before she came to television. And when she came to television at BCTV, she started as a reporter and worked her way up to the anchor desk. But she never stopped being a reporter. Mm -hmm. And she would help people in the newsroom. Uh, You would know this. Uh, She would help people, no matter what your job was, in the newsroom. You may never be on TV. You might be a technician. If you were nervous, one of our directors, Justin, said today, the first day he directed a show with Deb, she realized he was nervous. And she talked to him and made him feel better, and the show went fine. Uh, I remember when I started there in 1994, so Deb was anchoring the... uh, a new news, so you know we interacted quite a bit uh, from day one, and and uh, you know you raise a very good point. You know, people see her as an anchor, very personable, and and she and her personality came out every single day when she was anchoring. She did. There's no. There, she didn't fake anything. Uh, but people don't realize what a strong journalist she she was. I think sometimes, and when I used to talk to her off air, always asking about a particular story, what was behind the story, what was the reasoning behind it, you know, asking as many questions as she possibly could before he went to air on whatever I was working on, what other journalists were working on. Um, and she was always asking the right questions. And you raise a very good point in that she wasn't just somebody you saw on television, but she came with um, a great resume when it comes to radio reporting and print reporting especially. Yeah, she was, she was extremely well-rounded. And, and you're right, she could, and it's a gift, you know, for somebody in, in journalism to sort of see through the fog of a story and see what was important and what questions should be asked and what angles should be taken. Um, it's something you have to learn, but it's something that seemed to be innate with her. Mm-hmm. And, and as I said, she was so, uh, people talked and are talking within this newsroom today, people who knew her and worked with her. And there was a lot of tears when the news came down. I mean, we were all expecting it one day because of course she was, you know, had been suffering with Alzheimer's for quite a while and it was inevitable what was going to happen. And so I think, you know, a lot of us, you know, thought we were prepared. Let's put it that way. Mm -hmm. And, and then when you hear the news, it is stunning, but everybody in the newsroom used the word generous when describing her and what they meant by that 
was she was generous with her time. If you needed help, if you were new, and even if you weren't new and you needed help and some clarity on a story or something you were doing, she would always generously give her time to help you to get your story forward or whatever it was bothering you. She would help you in that way. Yeah. Uh, you know, one thing I, lo- I loved about Deb was the perspective that she always would focus on was not just what the establishment thought or uh, these individuals would think, and you know, what other authority types would think. It's always about how does this impact the viewer? How does this impact our listeners? Whatever it may be, what the audience is, how does this impact everyday people? And mm-hmm. she never lost sight of that. I think partially beyond just being a great journalist was that I think it's also her small town roots. She's a product of trail and, uh, and left, I think, when she was 18 years old, never looked back. But it, she was always very proud of talking about her small town roots, especially. Yeah, I, I, I like to say she had small town sensibilities. You know, she was kind, but as I said earlier, don't take that kindness for gullibility yeah. because she she knew what was going on around her, and she did. She cared very deeply about how things were presented to the audience, and that, and that really is the key, you know, to this business, to, you know, it's, um, you have to, you know, do stories that affect people, you know, and, and, and you have to tell it in such a way that people understand and you have to care about what you're doing as well. You just can't, you can't fake it. You have to care about it. And Deb cared about it very deeply. Whether the story was a hard-hitting news story, which she did, whether the story was a fun feature piece, which she did. Uh, Tony Parsons said a number of years ago, um, there was nothing Deb couldn't do. There really was nothing she couldn't do. If you wanted to do a political interview, she could do that. If you needed her to do a hard-hitting story that, you know, uh, you were going after somebody in power, she could do that. If it was a sad story where empathy needed to be involved, she could do that. If it was a fun story, she could do that. If you needed her to host a charity event, she could do that. Host a show, she could do that. There was nothing she could not do. And, and the great thing about her, too, is that she would laugh when something was funny on the air. And I think that endeared her to the audience even more, because as I said earlier, that's her. There was no faking. She didn't think, oh, I shouldn't laugh because I'm a news anchor. If it was funny, she laughed and she shared that with the audience. If you're just joining us, we are speaking to Global BC sports anchor Squire Barnes. We were talking about uh, uh, our former colleague, Deb Hope. Uh, and a longtime journalist, and of course, people here in British Club, you know very well for many years of anchoring the new news, and of course, uh, the news hour uh, as well. Uh, Squire, we we are also going to talk a little bit about sports here, uh, and of course, over the weekend, we uh, heard the Edmonton Oilers were knocked out of uh, the playoffs. Uh, following a 5-2 loss to the uh, Vegas Golden Golden Knights. Uh, we also, of course, know that Toronto um, uh, uh, was booted out as well earlier. Uh, this this year marks 30 years now where we haven't seen a Canadian team uh, lift the Stanley Cup. Why do you think that is? Well, probably a bit of bad luck. Hmm. And also, there's a lot of teams. And, you know, you can't blame it now on the salaries because with a salary cap, everybody competes at an even level, basically, or can if they want to. Um, When I say bad luck, Montreal Canadiens won the Stanley Cup in 1993. They beat the LA Kings that year. That's when Gretzky was on the Kings. 
and they won it in five games. Since that time, four Canadian teams have gotten to Game 7s in the Stanley Cup Finals. Mm-hmm. We know who two of them are very well. The Canucks and the Canucks. Mm-hmm. They didn't win the Stanley Cup. They did cause a riot by not winning the Stanley Cup, but they didn't win both times, I might add. But not that it was their fault, but that's what everybody remembers now. But they lost Game 7 to the Rangers in 94, and they lost Game 7 to the Bruins in 2011. And, of course, the Flames and the Oilers made surprising runs of the Stanley Cup final in 2004 and 2006, and both lost in Game 7. So that's why I say it's a bit of unlucky that Canada hasn't won another Stanley Cup since then. I know Montreal was in the Stanley Cup uh, two years ago. They surprised everybody by making the finals, but they were beaten in five games by Tampa Bay. Yeah, so I think it's a bit unlucky in a way, but this year, you know, at the start of the second round, Jazz, uh, after the first round was over, they in Vegas, the odds makers sort of redo their odds to see who's going to win the Stanley Cup. Mm-hmm. And at the start of the second round, Toronto was the favorite and Edmonton was the second favorite. So the odds makers thought it was going to be an all-Canadian Stanley Cup final this year, which, of course, it's not. Uh, how much of this do you think also it has to do with the fact that the NHL expanding, you've got more Canadian talent diluted over more teams, uh, perhaps uh, more Europeans coming? Is that part of it as well, or is, or is it, or is it just a question of just it, it's going to happen? We, we all know it's going to happen eventually, but I'm just wondering why it's just taken. We have made it to the finals, but it's taken so long to 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 get another team past the finish line. Yeah, I, I don't know if there is one particular reason why a Canadian team hasn't won the Stanley Cup since 1993. Um, I mean, some teams have been very good uh, for a while. Like, you know, the Maple Leafs have been a very good team in the recent years and just haven't, for whatever reason, been able to translate that in the playoffs. And now we know the Oilers have, you know, the greatest player in the world and a guy who's pretty close to him in Leon Dreisaitl. But again, you know, haven't been able to even get to the final with Connor McDavid. Um it is tough to win the Stanley Cup. It is. I mean, that seems like a simple thing to say, but there are a lot of teams. But there are a lot of teams in every league um, in North America. Um, I, I, again, I, I, I wish I had one reason to say this is the reason the Canadian teams haven't lifted the Stanley Cup, but it just seems to be, for whatever whatever reason, they just haven't been able to get over the hump in the playoffs. And as we said, there have been teams that got very close. I mean, when the Canucks lost in 2011 to Boston, Vancouver overall was the best team in the NHL. They had the best regular season record, but for whatever reason, their their you know goaltending from Luongo on the road didn't work out, and their and their goal scoring seemed to dry up, much like Toronto's did, much like Edmonton's did, five on five. They were able to score power play goals, but I know that's not really answering your question. But I can't really give you a specific answer to your question, other than to say yes, it's been a thirty year drought, and there's no bona fide one reason why there has been. Yeah, and, and when you look at, uh, you know, just uh, south of the border there, Seattle, a relatively new franchise, yep. and, uh, doing quite well. And maybe it's just uh, the lament of a Canucks fan. I don't well, that's, know. <laughs> yeah, that's the most galling thing of all, I think, for everybody in the NHL. Okay, go beyond Seattle. If Seattle wins tonight against Dallas, they will be in the Final Four in just their second year of existence. But take the Vegas Golden Knights, who knocked out Edmonton last night. Vegas has been an NHL team for six years. Four times they've been in the Final Four. 
Like, that's the part that gets everybody. Like, hold it a second. Like, there were guys on the Oilers last night, and this often is said when a team loses. Well, you have to learn how to lose in the playoffs before you can win. Well, why doesn't Vegas have to learn how to lose? Like, they made the final in their very first season. And uh, it, it just, again, there's no rhyme or reason as to why that happens. And some teams, uh, some teams, Jazz, are built to do well in the regular season, but for some reason they can't do well in the playoffs. They don't have, the playoffs is a different game. And some teams are built better in the playoffs for playoff hockey. And I think in the case of Toronto and Edmonton, they do need to make some adjustments. They have excellent players, some of the best in the NHL, but they need to make some adjustments so that when they get to the playoffs next season, providing they do, they will be able to succeed. Squire, thank you. Thanks very much, Jazz. Appreciate it. During the 5 o'clock news, we, of course, heard the B.C. government will soon begin sending up to 50 cancer patients per week uh, to Bellingham. Health Minister Adrian Dix made the announcement uh, shortly after 2.30 uh, today. The minister said that uh, starting on May 29th, uh, B.C. Cancer will offer eligible patients the opportunity to have their radiation therapy at one of two partner clinics uh, in Bellingham, Washington. Joining me now to talk a little bit about the issue is Health Minister Adrian Dix. Minister, thank you for joining us. Good afternoon, Jeff. Good afternoon. Uh, is this a temporary program? By temporary, is, you have a sense of, of when it will end? Yes, it is. This is a, a two-year agreement um, with uh, centers in Bellingham. It allows us to do up to 50 uh, patients a month to significantly increase our capacity. If you think of what 50 patients a week, I should say, 50 patients a week is, it's about uh, 2,000 to 2,500 patients over the course of a year. We had delivered last year about 14,000 new patients' radiation therapy. So this is a very significant short-term increase that will reduce wait times for people needing radiation therapy. For me, it wasn't acceptable that wait, line, wait times for some people were going outside of the clinical standard. And so this is an action to do that while all of the action, other actions we're taking in our 10-year cancer plan come into effect. How do we, we get here? How do we get here? We yeah. got here because we're seeing, one, a significant increase in population, two, uh, a lack of investment really over 15 years in some areas of care, which we're fixing by our 10-year cancer plan and other initiatives we're taking, three, we have an aging population. And so what we wanted to do here is simply take advantage of a circumstances that was there for many patients which is to reduce wait times now while we take all the other measures to address the fundamental issue. If you look at the next 10 years, we're going to go from 30,000 cancer diagnoses in BC to 45,000. So that's why we're building all of these new cancer centers and adding all these linear accelerators across BC. But if you have cancer right now, as we speak on, uh, on May the 14th, well, you want us to take action now and that's what we're doing. Um, What's to, how can you reassure British Columbians that we won't be here having the same conversation five years from now? Because we're building um, a significant capacity in the system. There's a lot of talk today about Surrey. Well, we're building a second hospital in Surrey, one that had been delayed and not built in the past. Uh, we have uh, 17 major hospital projects. We, ha- we have four uh, new cancer centre projects going in place. So that capacity is there. And we have a health human resources plan that coming out of the this, going through this period of the COVID-19 pandemic is a major investment. And so all of that says that we're preparing for the future. But it also shows what we did today was that we're going to take action 
to support patients and deliver them the patients uh, the care they need, and not be uh, stuck on ideology or ceremony, but the focus on delivering that care. So somebody listening today and now needing that cancer care, how would it work in regards to traveling to Bellingham, uh, the cost that uh, they would have to incur to be there, to be there with loved ones? How would that work uh, on sort of a practical on-the-ground level? On a practical uh, on-the-ground level, all the costs are going to be um, supported, including for a person accompanying the person having cancer, giving them uh, who has cancer, giving them support through their radiation therapy. The focus will be right now on the two largest groups of people needing radiation therapy, uh, prostate cancer and breast cancer. And uh, they would be fully supported for their costs going to Bellingham and then supported in their care, obviously, when they're in Bellingham and then back in, uh, in British Columbia. Much of this care would be done within five days, a series of treatments over a five-day period. And uh, that's why uh, that's why we're doing it this way. This adds, like I say, to our capacity. Right now, we have um, we're going to go to about fourteen thousand. We have to do about fourteen thousand new patients every year. We expect that number to increase dramatically because of an aging population and population growth in the next couple of years. And this allows us to meet that and to reduce wait times, and that's what we want to do. So if I'm going across uh, with a family member who needs care, you know, you can expense your gas, your your food, and then I guess costs over there at the clinic are directly billed to the system? And if you're staying there, uh, accommodation as well, of course. Yeah. And, that, and that is just a question of the individual or individuals attending? Who You would just hand in your expenses or file your expenses? Then? You, you would, but there's going to be a whole uh, concierge team of BC Cancer supporting you in that journey. So you're going to get supports to do that, and you will be uh, reimbursed for all of those costs. And I think that's an important, uh, an important thing. People traveling across the border, it's uh, an important moment of stress alone. That's what we want them to be accompanied and uh, providing support for costs. Some people would might choose to go back and forth. You know, if you lived in South Surrey, for example, uh, Jazz, that might be the case. Mm-hmm. But for others, they would have to stay there during the course of their treatment, and they'd be supported in that. And uh, this will also, of course, create um, more space and more opportunity for people in British Columbia to go to BC, other BC cancer centers and get mm-hmm. the radiation therapy they need. You're increasing your capacity and reducing wait times. And I think when you get a cancer diagnosis and you need radiation therapy, the only question in your mind is, how soon can I get it? And this will allow us to give it to people sooner. Minister, just a broad philosophical question. You uh, are the minister of the largest um, ministry by budget. I think probably 40 cents for every dollar we spent uh, with the B.C. government goes towards health care. You have a, a significant large budget, a large responsibility that comes with it. Isn't there something philosophically wrong that we, who, as Canadians, as British Columbians, we spend so much of our dollars put into healthcare, a public system, we support a public system, that we are still reliant on the United States, in this case, Bellingham facilities, to deal with some of our challenges. Why can we not uh, fix this healthcare system? Uh, It's not a question of not putting enough dollars in, and this is not, you know, and and we could have this conversation under BC Liberal government as well, but why do we put so much money into this system, but we are still, at the end of the day, having to send people to Bellingham. There's something philosophically wrong. Something is wrong with our system when we have to do that. Well, I think there would be something wrong with the system if we had this opportunity to reduce wait times and we didn't take it. So we are absolutely doing that. But look what's happened in the last few years. BC has done a better job dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic than 
all of the other provinces, in my view, and lots of other people's view, in all 50 American states. We are uh, delivering in, uh, we are delivering the highest level of surgery we've ever done. We've gone from the bottom of the country in many key surgical categories to the top. We lead Alberta in vastly the most surgical categories. We went from the lowest level of diagnostic care in many places, especially Fraser Health. We're now at the top. We're, uh, we just announced a deal with family doctors, and 3,044 of them have joined that deal, including 500 people who didn't practice longitudinal family practice last year. We, had the, we led the country in the recruitment of new registered nurses. In fact, we're delivering for the system. We added, as you know, 150,000 people to BC last year because we have a growing economy, the best economy in the country overall, and we're delivering service for those. We've gone from a period really of a decade prior to my becoming Minister of Health when we um, were below um, all other jurisdictions in terms of investment in healthcare, And now we're making up for that uh, with uh, major investments. And I think that's what people want us to do. And that's what we're doing. So I, I think this is an unusual circumstances. But, you know, I think it's also in a public health care system. You go and you find people the care they need. And that's exactly what we're doing. Minister, thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate it. Hey, anytime. Take care, eh? For just joining us, uh, we spoke to Health Minister Adrian Dix at the 5 o'clock hour. Uh, uh, of course, in regards to his announcement a few hours ago in regards to the BC government, uh, who said uh, that they will soon be sending up to 50 cancer patients per week to the United States for treatment. Uh, the program will begin on, on May 29th, and it will be 50 cancer patients per week. Uh, Mr. Dix uh, said that with our growing population and some of uh, the lack of funding uh, from um, a previous era. Let me <laughs> read through the lines there. BC Liberals lack of funding, according to Mr. Dix. Uh, they're in this uh, situation at this particular point that his government is spending more money and they are building more cancer centers. More dollars are coming. But at this particular point, at this time, to help people that are uh, needing cancer treatment here and now, they are going to be sending up to 50 cancer patients per week to the United States for treatment. And of course, uh, if a loved one can go with those patients uh, and that will be picked up by that cost will be picked up by taxpayers well joining me now to talk a little bit about the issue is dr brian day founder and current medical director of the canby surgery center dr day thank you for joining us oh you're welcome uh, I wanted to chat with you today because, you know, this government uh, uh, has been fighting and has fought uh, the uh, idea of uh, private clinics helping uh, in the broader challenges of healthcare, dealing with challenges of healthcare in this, uh, this uh, province and country. And here we are sending uh, patients to Bellingham, or soon we'll be sending them to Bellingham. Your thoughts on today's announcement? Well, well, I think for the patients, it's a, it's a good thing. It's nothing new, you know. In the in the early nineties, the NDP government of um, of that era um, was sending patients down to Washington State for open heart surgery. So there's nothing new in this, um, but it is further evidence and, and, in fact, proof of of the collapse of the system uh, in Canada, the health system, and and there are many, many. Patients, um, you know, we we know from government data that over thirteen and a half thousand Canadians died last year waiting for medically necessary procedures and surgical wait, and that's an increase. That was an increase of twenty four percent over the last four years. But you know, we we know that in 
all cancers, not just those needing radiation, but cancers of the bladder, ovary, prostate, lung, colon, etc. Only one in six patients, and up to as few as one in six patients are being treated in the maximum safe time that the government has designated. And we, this is not, this is a, a trans-Canada, pan-Canadian problem. You know, just earlier this this year. Um, it, uh, the Ottawa General Hospital um, uh, announced that, uh, or, or admitted that only 13% of patients were, with breast cancer were meeting the target time, the, the maximum safe time, 13%. And, and yet we know from studies that the risk of death rises from 6 to 8% every, every four weeks of delay. So this is, this is, a, this is a catastrophe and uh, obviously, it's good for the patients that they get treated somewhere, um, but um, but it's time to look at what's wrong with our health system and fix it. And and by doing that, you look at countries that are doing better than us, and we're ranked tenth out of tenth in by the of of rich developed countries that have universal healthcare, and we're ranked tenth out of tenth in access, in equity, but number one in cost. So this is this is uh, these are uh, these statistics don't don't jive with me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and Mr. Dix, I did ask him. Look, how did we get here? Here's part of his response. How did we get here? We yeah. got here because we're seeing one a significant increase in population, two uh, a lack of investment really over 15 years in some areas of care, which we're fixing by our 10-year cancer plan and other initiatives we're taking. Three, we have an aging population. And so what we wanted to do here is simply take advantage of a circumstances that was there for many patients, which was to reduce wait times now while we take all the other measures to address the fundamental issue. If you look at the next 10 years, we're going to go from 30,000 cancer diagnoses in BC to 45,000. If you have cancer right now, as we speak, well, you want us to take action now, and that's what we're doing. Do you buy the broader issue that Mr. what Mr. Dick says is in regards to how we got here? I mean, I understand the sort of macro-level broad comments that he's made, but there's something fundamentally wrong when we're spending $40 billion uh, or 40%, sorry, of, of our provincial budget on public health care, and we're still having to send people to Bellingham. Yeah, I mean, as I said, we, we are getting the worst value for money out of our system. And, of course, you know, the, the reason... I believe that's the case, is that we have a monopoly that is no monopoly serves the consumer well. And we're, we're, we're talking about, let's look at Sweden and Norway and Belgium, and Germany and France and, and, and Switzerland. These are not right-wing countries. They all allow a little bit of competition that makes the public system perform better. And, and you know, we, have, we are literally... Um, uh, you know, as I said, uh, in last year, th- over 13,500 Canadians died on wait lists in for me- waiting for medically necessary procedures, which, it, we, and yet they are denied by law, the only country in the world that denies them by law the option of doing something about it. And then the other point is there are many cancers, many of the cancers that I've referenced could be treated at clinics in British Columbia, um, like ours. I mean, we, we know this, you know, um, Angelina Jolie um, had um, the gene for that was, predicts that you will get breast cancer. And we know from studies done uh, recently that women in BC 
are waiting up to two or three years for, for the procedures with this gene and developing breast cancer while they wait. And, and this is a completely preventable cancer. So there is a lot that has to be looked at, and it, it, uh, you can't simplify this. It's, 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 and perhaps the, the most profound statement I can make is it's actually cheaper in the long run to treat patients quickly. Even in, the, and I'm not talking public or private. I'm talking in the public system. But what we have in Canada is uh, rationed access based on three to four year financial uh, cycles between elections, where governments don't. And this is this is not a long term solution. I think even Mr. Dix would would admit that. Yeah. But we have a dire emergency in our health system, and yet no one is looking looking to, to at, at real solutions. And, uh, you know, I use the hockey analogy. If, if you were the 10th-ranked team in, in, a, in a hockey league with 10 teams and you were the, the worst performer and, had the, and yet were spending the most, wouldn't you go and look at what the top two or three teams are doing? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. We're Absolutely. Dr. Day, thank you so much for your time today. You're welcome. for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.